This is Because I Said So, parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, John Roseman, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved. From American Family Radio, here's your host, John Roseman. Hello and welcome to another episode of Because I Said So with your host, John Roseman. Concerning my upcoming speaking schedule, uh, you'll discover that I'm speaking in Memphis, Tennessee on January the 22nd and 23rd at Born Blum Jewish Community School. And you can call Born Blum Jewish Community School and find out more about that event. But what I can tell you is that on the afternoon of Sunday the 22nd of January, I'll be doing a three-hour seminar for parents titled Parenting with Love and Leadership. And then on Monday evening, January the 23rd, that is, I'll be doing again at Born Blum Jewish Community School a talk on teenagers to parents at 7 o'clock in the evening. Then I move on to St. Charles, Missouri, which is a suburb of St. Louis, and I'm going to be speaking there on the evening of January the 24th, that's Tuesday, at Immaculate Conception School. And in both cases, in both Memphis and St. Charles, you can find out more about those events by calling the schools in question. Then on Sunday... January the 29th, I will be doing a three-hour seminar at Tabernacle Baptist Church in New Bern, North Carolina. Tabernacle Baptist Church happens to be my home church, and I will be doing a three-hour seminar. And this is one that I'm just beginning to roll out, folks. It's material that I've been developing over the last five, six years or so and feel ready to turn it into presentation form. I'll be doing a three-hour seminar. Again, that's the afternoon of Sunday, January the 29th, Tabernacle Baptist Church on Broad Street in New Bern, North Carolina, three blocks from my house, on the 10 biggest mistakes parents make and how to stop making them. And again, that'll be from 2 o'clock to 5.30 Then I'll be moving on on February the 3rd, 4th, and 5th to Greenville, North Carolina, where I will be doing a three-day conference, and I'm the only speaker, ta-da, at Trinity Free Will Baptist Church. That's Trinity Free Will Baptist Church in Greenville, North Carolina, on the 3rd, 4th, and 5th of February. So I'd like to begin this show by talking about an essay that was written in 1963 by novelist, short story writer, essayist Flannery O'Connor. O'Connor was a Southern writer who died tragically in 1964 from complications from lupus, She was a writer in what is called the Southern Gothic style and shares that distinction with 
people like William Faulkner and Harper Lee and Carson McCullough. During her unfortunately short life and career as a writer, Flannery O'Connor produced some just absolutely brilliant stuff, including a 1963 essay that she titled Total Effect and the Eighth Grade. Total Effect and the Eighth Grade. You may be able to find that online. Total Effect and the Eighth Grade, Flannery O'Connor. I recommend it if you can find it. Her purpose in uh, this essay was to argue for requiring children to read the classics that defined Western civilization, even going as far back as the Iliad and the Odyssey. In the course of making her case, O'Connor said something that every parent, in my estimation, should be required to read and regurgitate on a regular basis. To wit, O'Connor said the whims and preferences of children should always, always be sublimated to the sense and judgment of their elders. I'm going to say that again. The whims and preferences of children should always, always be sublimated to the sense and judgment of their elders. And what if the student finds that this is not to his taste, O'Connor then asked rhetorically, and then answered herself, well, that is regrettable, most regrettable. His taste should not be consulted. It is being formed. Now, let me say that in 1963, when O'Connor wrote and published this particular essay, and again, the title is Total Effect and the Eighth Grade, and so she's talking about kids who are 12, 13, 14 years old. When, in 1963, she wrote this essay, what she said was not surprising to anyone. It was certainly not revolutionary, radical, and I would dare say that 99% of her readers would have nodded their heads as they read those words, which I will repeat, the whims and preferences of children should always, always be sublimated to the sense and judgment of their elders. And then O'Connor asked herself, actually, and what if the student, and again, we're talking 12, 13, 14-year-old kids, what if the student, the young teenager, finds that this is not to his taste, this being that his elders determine what is going to happen in his life for the most part. He does not. And O'Connor answers, well, that's most regrettable. His taste should not be consulted. It is being formed. The entire essay, as I said before, is a spirited defense of classical education, which I am a huge supporter of. And I recommend the entire essay to one and all, but I have never read a better rationale for classical parenting than is contained in the aforementioned, I guess that's the word, aforequoted quote. It is, in the classical sense of the term, 
precious. Now, I'd like everyone to pay close attention to this. A British conservative politician, and I'm very sorry, but I've misplaced the specific reference, once said it was the first right of a people to be governed well. The first right of a people is that of being governed well. If you substitute child for people in that quote, that about sums up my philosophy of child-rearing, which is not, in fact, my philosophy at all, but one I inherited from our much wiser foremothers and forefathers. So let's do the substitution. The first right of a child is to be governed well. A child lacking farsightedness does not know how to govern himself. He does not know what is in his or her own best interest. He is apt to prefer that which is bad for him and reject that which is good for him. Thus, he would rather drink a sugar-laden soda than a glass of water, eat a bowl of ice cream than a help a helping of broccoli, play video games, then do chores, stay up, then go to bed at a decent hour, disobey, then obey, and so on. His parents and teachers must provide the restraint and direction he cannot provide himself. Proper restraint and proper direction are essential to turning the antisocial toddler into a disciple who will trust and look up to his parents. Follow their lead and subscribe to their values in the same order that's respect, obedience, and loyalty. And proper in both cases means with lots of love. In effect, in the essay that I'm discussing, Flannery O'Connor says that children, irrespective of IQ, do not think correctly. In this regard, all too many of today's parents are trying to pull the horse with the cart. They think discipline is all about shaping proper behavior by manipulating reward and punishment. That's not discipline, that's behavior modification. And as I've said many times on this program, as well as in my newspaper column and books, that's how one trains a rat, not a human being. Discipline is the process by which a child is taught to think properly. A child who thinks properly will behave properly, but the converse is not true. A child who only learns what behaviors are appropriate to what situations may well become nothing more than a clever manipulator. Therefore, a child is properly discipled, the word we usually use is disciplined. A child is properly disciplined, more accurately discipled, by being taught right from wrong and the preferably classical reasons why right is right and wrong is wrong. Discipline, then, is about values. Proper behavior is the measure, not the object. Nonetheless, until the child's values are formed, he must be restrained from doing what he wants to do and directed to doing what he does not want to do. I believe Paul had something to say about that. 
And as O'Connor said, he need not and should not be consulted about it. I'm John Roseman. I'm your host. The show is called Because I Said So. I'm here every Saturday afternoon on American Family Radio, and I'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, John Roseman. The show is called Because I Said So. I'm going to talk in this second segment about being afraid of your mother, uh, something that uh, American children just aren't anymore. They aren't afraid of adults in general. The child who is afraid of his or her parents, not terrified now, not living in mortal fear of, but just in biblical fear the type of fear described in the book of Proverbs over and over again as it applies to our need to fear God is few and far between. I recently received a letter from a grandmother who told me that her 14-year-old grandson is afraid of his mother, who is, in fact, a single parent. 14 years old, boy, afraid of a single mother. That's a good thing. When told this by her ex-husband, who was very concerned, said single mom, he'd better be. That's great, isn't it? The ex-husband, who's trying to be the kid's friend, tells the single mother, our son is afraid of you, and the single mother says, he'd better be. Mind you, the grandmother was not concerned in the least. She celebrated the fact, proudly reporting to me that her grandson is well-mannered, respectful, does well in school, performs chores willingly, even when he doesn't want to, and has, as she put it, above-average social skills, which I take to mean he's got plenty of friends. In all likelihood, and I base this conjecture on many years of professional experience, the boy's Fear of his mother bothers the father because the overwhelming majority of today's dads, and I implied this before, trying to be their kids' best buddies. This is the new ideal in American fathering. Be your child's best buddy. These fathers think that good parents try to please their children, The boy's mother understands just the opposite. Good children try to please their parents. She, not he, is spot on. And let me tell you that children do not respect adults who try to be their best friends. They just don't. Period. Full disclosure, I was afraid of my mother, who was, by the way, as is the case with the mother of the 14-year-old boy, my mother was single for most of the first seven years of my life. Uh, My parents uh, separated when I was about two, divorced shortly thereafter, and my mother remarried when I was seven. So from, and my, my father was in the military for most of the first two years of my life. 
So, in effect, my mother was, whether legally or not, a single parent for all of the first seven years of my life. She was the formative parent in my life, and I was, in fact, afraid of her. This very loving, funny, approachable, playful human being. Very smart, also. My mother eventually obtained a Ph.D. in plant morphology and taught at the University of Illinois Chicago Circle Campus. And by the way, I maintain that fear of your mother, and and again, I'm not talking about terror. I'm going to say this several times during this program. I'm not talking about a child, uh, you, you know, involuntarily wetting his pants when his mother walks into the room. I am not talking about terror. I am talking about the sort of fear, in 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 this case, of the Lord that is described in the book of Proverbs on numerous occasions. I'm talking about the same kind of fear in relationship to one's mother and father, but I'm focusing on this show, in this show, on fear of one's mother. That fear, I maintain, is the beginning of respect for women, something obviously lacking by the way, in all too many of today's young men, and even worse, too many young women don't seem to care. They obviously don't care, one symptom being that they dress in order to appeal to the male of the species' more purient instincts. I may have pronounced that wrong. I think it's prurient. It's hard word for me to pronounce. You'll have to forgive me. Somebody look it up and give me a call, okay? Uh, but again, let me be clear on this. My mother never yelled at me, never yelled, never, never raised her voice. Everything she said to me was very calmly said. There were times when she was stern, but she never yelled. She never spanked. She never even threatened to spank. Again, I was not terrified of my mother, but I was afraid of her. So the question becomes, why? Why was John Rosemond afraid of a mother who never yelled and was never threatening? And the answer is that she conducted herself as if she was in complete control at all times. Complete control of my environment, complete control of my life, and complete control of our relationship with one another. She acted as if exercising authority over me was the most natural thing she had ever done. She went about it calmly. She went about it coolly. And she went about it in a way that projected a complete confidence in the legitimacy of her authority. She made it perfectly clear that she was not there to be my friend, playmate, gopher, or fixer. Although, again, funny, approachable, playful. One of my most vivid memories of my mother is her doing housework while she sang uh, songs by Doris Day and uh, Patsy Cline and... uh, Uh, You know, other pop songs of the day. I mean, she was just a happy-go-lucky person for the most part. My mother expected me to entertain myself. 
my mother expected me to do for myself, get my own snacks, for example, and my mother expected me to fix my own problems, although she did fix those I was incapable of fixing. She was not, as all too many of today's moms and dads are, a vending machine to be taken for granted and disrespected when it doesn't produce on demand. I've said this many times that today's parents, and especially today's mothers, because today's mothers have been squeezed by peer pressure and cultural pressure into the role of enablers of their children, that today's mothers are vending machines, in effect. Their children believe they can come up to the vending machine, punch a button, and something they want will come out, will be produced. And if it doesn't immediately uh, come out, if it isn't immediately produced, the child begins screaming at the vending machine, kicking the vending machine, hitting the vending machine, cursing the vending machine, That was not a description of my mother. My mother was not a vending machine to be taken for granted. By the time I was three, my mother had created and was enforcing an emotional and physical boundary between her and me. Mother was a part-time job for my mother. John Rosemond My mother sometimes said, you don't need a mother right now, and I'm not going to be one. Now run along, or I'll put you to work around here. And I ran along, and I was better off, although I rarely realized it at the time. My mother let me know that she was many things. She was a daughter, a sister, a friend, an employee, a student. And yes, she was my mother, but mother was not going to consume her body and soul as it does So many female parents in America today. John Rosemond, you don't need a mother right now, and I'm not going to be one. Now run along or I'll put you to work around here. A child does not possess the ability to comprehend such a natural display of authority. Therefore, the child's response is, quote, fear, end quote. I use the term to refer to a sense of respectful awe. And by the way, according to my thesaurus, fear and awe are, in fact, (laughs) symptoms, synonyms. The parent who is feared, in the sense of the term in which I am using the term fear, doesn't care what her child thinks about any decision she makes. She's not a politician She's a leader. She's not striving for relationship. She is projecting leadership. Proper leadership will eventually culminate in a proper relationship, but trying for relationship completely neutralizes one's capacity for leadership. The fearful child does not always like his parents' decisions, instructions, and expectations. Nonetheless, he obeys because he intuitively knows that his parent is always acting in his best interest. He trusts even when he does not want to obey. 
He trusts and ends up obeying. Sometimes the child complains that this parent, the parent I'm talking about, my mother, maybe your mother, maybe a mother you know, is mean. When children use that term, they mean that they realize that their parents mean exactly what they say. That's what, from a child's point of view, a mean parent is. A mean parent is a parent who simply means what he or she says, is unequivocal, not wishy-washy. That is, by the way, one of the greatest gifts a parent can give a child, especially when it's a woman giving it to a young man, in this case, boy. Thanks for joining us. Remember, every Saturday, 5 o'clock Central Time on American Family Radio.